Let's first listen to the Word of God as we find that in Romans chapter 3, the first 18 verses, and then Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. So we begin with Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 1. And we read there the word of God as follows. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision much in every way? Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, Why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. His mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's speaking about all mankind there. And then we turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Beginning at verse 17 to the end of the chapter. This I say and therefore testify and this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, 
that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is, what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So far the word of God. And now we'll read together our confession. Lord's Day 37. And there we confess the, the following. But may we swear an oath by the name of God in a godly manner? Yes, when the government demands it of its subjects or when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth to God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is based on God's word and was therefore rightly used by saints in the Old and the New Testament. May we also swear by saints or other creatures? No. A lawful oath is a calling upon God who alone knows the heart to bear witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such honor. So far, our confession. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, boys and girls who belong to the Lord, maybe you wonder, after reading Lord's Day 37, why, why a sermon about the oath yet? I probably seldom, if ever, need to take the oath. So why spend a whole Sunday afternoon on it? But you have to think, was it any different in the days when the catechism was drawn up? The oath wasn't a daily thing either in those days. Still, our forefathers in the Reformed faith decided to include a whole Lord's Day about the oath in the confession of the Third Commandment. Why did they do that? Well, for one thing, as you can see, to expose the errors of Rome. You see that in question and answer to 102. The Church of Rome taught that you were allowed to swear by saints or angels. However, the Reformed churches rejected that. No creature under God can look into the hearts and is worthy of such honor that they can be witnesses to what you say, whether that's the truth or not, and judge you about it. Only God can do that. But the Catechism was also written to expose the error of the Anabaptists, the forefathers of the Mennonites and the Amish. They refused to swear any oath at all. And the, the reason they said no to oaths wasn't really a matter of Bible interpretation as such. But they believed that the spiritual and the natural world are worlds apart. They should be separated. They separated grace from nature. 
And the natural life of this fallen world then should be avoided as much as possible. Yes, we have to be part of it, but we have to avoid it as much as possible because God has rejected it and it's all going to be destroyed. So God's redemption in Christ, God's name, they said, really has nothing to do with this natural life which is all going to perish. And with that natural life, they included the social and cultural and political life, too. Government, too. And this is why also today, true Anabaptists, such as the Amish, they tried to live separate from the rest of the citizens of the world. And they refused to take an oath in court or any oath of office or so. That flows out of that. God's name has nothing to do with this natural world as such. And see, it's especially against that kind of grace versus nature thinking that Lord's Day 37 speaks out of Scripture. It goes against the idea that natural and spiritual are separate from each other. Society and state are certainly matters that have to do with God's redemptive work too. And that's something we as Reformed believers need to always keep in mind. We are not of the world, but we are in it. And we shouldn't try to withdraw from it, but let God be known in it. The Lord wants us to uphold His name in this world as much as we can, as Lord's Day 37 states, to His glory and for our neighbor's good. And that makes this Lord's Day relevant for today too. So I preach to you God's word confessed in Lord's Day 37 under this theme, God's gift of the oath. And we'll see first the need for that gift, secondly the basis for it, and thirdly the use of that gift. So first of all the need. In everyday life we're not called often to take an oath, but in the meantime God gave the permission to take oaths in his name. And he gave it, as we confess in Lord's Day 37, to promote fidelity and truth. To promote fidelity and truth in this world. As a mighty weapon against the sins of unfidelity and truth which are in this world. Of which we are part of. If there's no fidelity or loyalty anymore. No speaking of the truth anymore. No faithfulness to promises anymore. Then society will disintegrate in this world if you can't trust each other anymore in business or any other dealings can't believe each other anymore then everything becomes a big mess it'll be hellish in the world if God would have left us to ourselves after the fall and had just stepped back it would have been a disaster and all society on earth mankind would have destroyed itself long ago the lie, in fact, is Satan's main weapon to try to destroy God's work. Think of how he brought about the fall of mankind into sin in the first place. And by nature, we have, since the fall, become Satan's allies in that war against God, who is the truth. We've all come under the power of sin, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3. Let God be true, but every man a liar. As he writes there, every man a liar in the world, by nature. Also in the church, brothers and sisters, 
Jews and Greeks, says the apostle. And then he continues, verse 10 and following, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they practice deceit, and the poison of asps is under their lips. Wow, that is sharp criticism of all people as they are by nature. And that, that is us by nature too. Oh, by God's grace, we don't lie all the time, but let's be honest, there is a lot of unfaithfulness and lies in our own lives yet and in the world too. As parents, you're sometimes amazed at how, how your own children can lie sometimes. But it isn't only kids, adults too. Only it's more refined. People lie consciously or even unconsciously and by means of gossip and slander. And people don't keep their word. Promises are broken. Also promises made at marriage or baptism or so. It's baked into our beings after the fall. It's in our nature not to speak the truth. And brothers and sisters, do we always realize how awful that is? Not just when people lie out there in the world, but when we in the church also are drawn into those kind of lies again. How much isn't destroyed visibly and invisibly by lies and unfaithfulness? And the point is, if we had to build up society, it wouldn't happen. If we had to build the church, it wouldn't happen. We're inclined to break down instead. But when God comes to his people and says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the slavery of sin through my only son, Jesus Christ, then he adds, you shall swear by my name. You shall swear by my name. And God's name is who God is, what he does. God himself as he revealed himself in his word. He is the completely faithful and true one who you can depend on always speaks the truth in his word and is faithful to every word he has spoken. He's shown that through all the ages. Always, always faithful to his promises to his people Israel. Faithful when he led them out of Egypt in the promised land. Faithful when he sent his only son to save sinners, to save the world. God's name, brothers and sisters, is the only truly reliable and trustworthy point in heaven and earth after the fall. And he gave us that name to use in the oath to promote fidelity and truth among people in this world, among sinners here. He said, you can use my name when necessity requires it to give extra credence to what you say in very important situations. And that's amazing, brothers and sisters, when a judge calls me to speak as a witness to a crime, who's going to guarantee that I'm going to tell the truth and nothing but the truth? By nature, I'm a liar like everybody else. Who knows what's in my heart as I speak? Only God. And when I take an office in government or join the police force or the armed forces, and promise to be true to Her Majesty the Queen in this country, who can guarantee that I really mean what I say and will fulfill what I promise to the best of my ability. We use our tongues to deceive, the apostle wrote in Romans 3. Well, it's for that purpose that God gave us his name and told us in the Bible 
we could use his name to certify the truth of what we say and for him to bear witness to that truth. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows that I'm not lying. And if I do lie anyway, he knows that and he has the right to punish me then and he alone. And see, that's why it's so foolish to swear by angels or other creatures too, as the Church of Rome claims you can do. No other creature, no other creature can verify what's in my heart and my motives and so on. Only God knows what's in here. So only he can say, swear by my name to the truth of what you say. And then I will be the witness of that. And see, what a wonderful gift the oath in God's name is then, congregation. We have a point in this world we can certify truth. He makes truth in society a possibility again. God gives us his name to use in the oath so that the fidelity and truth can be maintained in society. He gives a possibility to call on his name in the oath in order that disloyalty and the lie can be resisted in society he gives his own glorious name in order to give human life on earth a foundation again to build up on. Life can be built up on the basis of his name in the legal system, the political system, among people who are responsible to keep law and order and peace. We can make use of God's name to maintain and promote fidelity and truth in society. And the devil wants to undermine and destroy the world by promoting faithlessness and falsehood. But God says, use my name to promote fidelity and truth and to hinder the work of the devil. And you see then why it's so wrong when certain Anabaptist-type sects forbid the use of the oath in God's name. They don't see that God's name has everything to do with earthly life and society here. They say the oath may not be used since God has nothing to do with the government and the social order here, the world out here. Our words should be enough, they say. God's name belongs in the church, but it shouldn't be used in the courts or anywhere else. Not what God wants. He is the God of the whole earth. He fashioned the earth, and he upholds its pillars also today. We sang earlier on with Psalm 75, the earth and all its fullness belong to him. He says in Psalm 24, and he's faithful to his creation. He wants to, so he wants to push back the devil and his influence on earth with his name by letting people use his name in the oath to reject the oath in court and for official positions in government or in the army and so on as to give in to the devil. God, in that way, is being pushed out of society. And it's given over to man and to the lie which is under his tongue. See, this is why the issue of the oath isn't just a minor squabble. The issue is whether we see God's name as critical importance for state and society and the world in general. Does God have to do with the world out there in general? Is God's name the foundation actually of all law and order and truth in society or not? The Anabaptists in the time of the Reformation and their descendants today say, no, God's name has nothing to do with state and society and natural life and politics. But 
As Reformed people, we confess it has everything to do with state and society and natural life and politics. It's, it's, it's the underpinning of it all. Important tool to keep life on earth from falling into chaos. His name is a gift. And that's why we as Christians want the oath to be maintained. Nowadays, there are people trying to push the Bible and the oath out of the courts and out of the halls of government and out of the bureaucracy of this nation. And what happens then is that, that in fact, the only basis of truth is being shoved aside and it's being sought in man himself, described in Romans 3 as the liar. Congregation, when the only name that can give certainty is rejected, the devil is allowed to do his dirty work and everything becomes uncertain and unstable. Once the name of God disappears from the scene, there's no basis for fidelity and truth to grow anymore here. And everything in political and society life becomes unsteady, shaky. Look at what happened to the communist countries in the old Soviet bloc. Communism, as you know, is atheist. And Karl Marx said religion is the opium for the people. Those countries had completely eliminated the oath in God's name. And yes, while there was still the strong idealism of communism, things held together for a while. But when that died, the lie and deceit and unfaithfulness took over and the Soviet Union fell apart. And the only way that communist regimes can hold things together is by force. Now think about our own country. Once God's name and his word start being pushed aside, also in the courts and in the government, things start to become shaky politically, legally, morally, and so on. And you see it, right? You see it happening in the news. People acting in defiance of the law and the government scandals, really, all because God's name and word are being pushed out of the life of the nation and the lives of its people. And what a task for us then as Reformed Christians who believe that God's name is the basis of stability in this world. God wants all of life to be connected with his name. It's our job then to keep doing that. We need to be real Christian teachers, housewives, politicians, laborers, lawyers, scientists, builders, policemen, soldiers, and so on, who are all willing to swear oaths when required to do so to promote fidelity and truth. To use God's name to promote that and to keep those oaths then. We have a task to connect God's name to this world, the natural life of this world, to our work and life so the devil and his destabilizing influence can be resisted. And not only when we officially swear oaths, but by being distinctly Christian in what we say and do. And we show God's name is over everything. He is God of all the earth. And the fact that he gave his name as a gift to be used for the oath shows that. So let's make his name great and use it in court and everywhere else with reverence. We come to the second point, the basis for this gift. At the end of the first answer of Lord's Day 7, we confess that oath-taking is based on God's word and was therefore rightly used by the saints in the Old and the New Testament. 
Noel, it doesn't say that oath-taking is based on the fact that it was used by the saints in the Old and New Testament. That would have been a very weak basis for the oaths because saints can err too. Think of saints like the Apostle Peter who swore false oaths. I don't know this man. So we don't base the use of oath on the fact that the saints used it, but on the fact that God himself commanded it, and that's why they used it. That's why the saints used it. God himself commanded that they swear by his name. For instance, Deuteronomy 6.13, where he says, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him, and shall take oaths in his name. And that's the basis for oath-taking also for covenant people of the New Testament. In Romans 1 verse 9, the apostle says, For God is my witness that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. That's an oath. He, he's swearing an oath there. And the Lord Jesus himself swore an oath. Matthew 26 verse 63, Jesus was being tried before the Sanhedrin. The high priest Caiaphas said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus, being placed under oath, says, It is as you say. Anabaptists also, many other sects today, deny that we can make use of the oath, and they do so by referring to Matthew 5, 34, where the Lord Jesus says, Do not swear at all. But they, they take those words out of context. Because it's true that he said there, but I tell you, do not swear at all. But they take those words out of context because there's more to what Jesus said. He also said, and this is the continuation of what he said there, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. See, the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't talking about the use, but about the misuse of the oath by the Pharisees, the Jews. They made a game out of it. If you swore by God's name, you were bound to your oath. But if you swore by the temple, you were less bound by your oath. And if you swore by your own head, you were even less bound to what you swore to. And in this way, congregation, the wonderful and beneficial gift of the oath was made useless again. God gave the oath to resist the lie, make life and society possible, but those Jews said, you can raise your hand and swear and still break your word as long as you use the right words. So people broke their word and lied under what sort of looked like oaths, but really weren't. The oath, which was supposed to maintain and promote fidelity and truth, was made an instrument of deceit and lies. And it's over against that kind of an attitude that the Lord Jesus said, I say to you, don't swear by heaven or by the temple or by Jerusalem or by your head. Those aren't real oaths. Oaths can only take place in God's name. Otherwise, just let your yes be yes and your no, no. And we need to keep that in mind, brothers and sisters. And that includes you too, boys and girls. You sometimes hear that easygoing oath-taking among our own people. You know, in a conversation, they always swear to God. I swear. We need to watch out for those kind of fake oaths too. Who are you swearing by? Let's not use oath-like statements simply to emphasize what we say. We don't promote 
truth and fidelity that way. Because then everything becomes questionable if we think we need those kind of oaths to convince others that we're telling the truth in our everyday conversation. Then our yes should be yes and our no should be no. Especially in the church. Our yes should be yes and our no should be no. In the, in the church, the words of the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 4.25 should apply. Therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of of one another. Fidelity and truth should be maintained and promoted above all in the church where we have put the Lord Jesus, we have put on the Lord Jesus Christ where we hold the name of God high. By His Spirit, He makes it possible so that in the communication among brothers and sisters in the church, oath should not be necessary anymore. Our yes should be yes and our no no when talking among each other and to others. Unfortunately, it's not completely like that yet, is it? The sins of infidelity and untruth are so powerful in us yet. We want to be, we want to be open and completely honest, but oh, the unfaithfulness of our hearts yet. We can't even always fully trust ourselves. We have to fight against those sins every day again in ourselves and, and in the grace of Christ and with the help of His Spirit because those sins destroy trust among people in general and among brothers and sisters in the Lord. They break down relationships. They take away the joy of being together. We're called to nurture trust, especially among brothers and sisters in the Lord. And yes, if needed, yes, we will take the oath. But otherwise, our yes should be yes and our no should be no. That brings blessing and peace. We come to the third part of the sermon, the use of the gift of the oath. When Christ returns on the clouds of heaven to make all things new, congregation, there will be no more need for oaths anymore. Then sin will be done away with. And that the day when sin no longer exists is coming. That that, that that day is coming should show in the church and among believers. It ought to be seen in us that our Lord Jesus Christ has defeated the dominion and the power of sin on the cross. It needs to be seen in us in the middle of this world that the Lord Jesus Christ has overcome falsehood on the cross. It's true, we'll never be perfect in this life, but it should be seen in us who belong to Christ that in principle we have in Christ overcome falsehood and deceit, that we have put Him on, as it says in Ephesians. If we have really embraced Jesus Christ crucified as our salvation and hope, then it cannot be that his victory over sin should show in us more and more too, shouldn't it? We'll, we'll repent of our sins of infidelity and untruth and then fight against them because those are things that are on the way out in the future. When Christ comes back, they have no place here anymore. And you know, that's why we normally don't use oaths in the church. We don't 
swear oaths when we make promises or vows at baptism of children or profession of faith or ordination or marriage. But we shouldn't forget that we do make those vows in the presence of God and of His Holy Church. And that makes those vows very serious, gives them, in fact, the value of an oath. And then it's maybe true that we're hardly ever called on by the civil authorities to make an oath, but in the church, all of us at one time or another are called to make those vows which are just as serious as the oaths. All of us. And the question is, do we then do as we promised? Do we really commit our whole lives to the Lord's service as living members of His church as we promise at the public profession of our faith? And do the parents really do all they can to instruct their children and have them instructed in the doctrine of the Word of God as summarized in the confessions and taught here in this Christian church as they promise at their baptism of their children? And do the office bearers really strive to fulfill their offices as they vowed that they would to the best of their abilities? And are husbands and wives really faithful and loving to each other as they promised to when they made their wedding vows? Those are serious questions, brothers and sisters, and they involve this too, this use of God's name. We, ha we have to be salt and light of the earth, the Lord Jesus said. And that means of anywhere Christ's victory over the lie and falsehood should show in our lives, it should be in us. And if that is not the case, people will notice that, that we still lie, or we're hypocritical, or we're unfaithful, or that we're not truthful in our business dealings. Or faithful in our marriage. What will they think of Christ's victory over sin by his crucifixion and resurrection? Then the salt has become tasteless. And the light is put under a bushel. And the glorious name of Christ would be blasphemed in this world in general. That name that should stand as the basis of truth. Brothers and sisters, we're only a blessing to the world. We're only salt and light in the world if we're true to our words and if we promote fidelity and truth in our words and in the oaths when the government demands it or necessity requires it. And therefore, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4, put away all falsehood and let everyone speak the truth with his neighbor and speak only what is what edifying to the neighbor. Keep the vows and the promises you also made in church here before the Lord to the best of your ability. What it comes down to is actually this. Let your Savior's victory and the hope you have him in Him who is coming to renew all things, let that come out in your life, become manifest in your life more and more. Fight for that. And that will give more and more joy in your life too. That's the purpose of your life, to glorify Him. And then you see the power of Christ which will be fully manifest over the whole world already at work in you and in other people. As the Lord says in Revelation 21 when He describes the New Jerusalem, nothing that is shameful or deceitful 
or causes a lie will enter that city. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Imagine that, congregation. No more deceit or lies there forever. And Satan and all who love lies cast out into everlasting darkness. Imagine what a joy that will be when every word you speak has the value of an oath. When everyone is completely trustworthy and faithful. Imagine what a wonderful world that will be. Amen.